Tell you what, it's uh, promised to be a really bad weekend this weekend. Didn't turn out to be so bad, did it? I stayed in the house all day yesterday. I went outside one time, I think it was to get the mail, and that was about it. Anticipating the bad weather, the winds this morning howling in my house. I don't know about you, Patty swears that she heard it whistle this morning while they came by our house. I don't know about yours, but uh, people already deciding not to come to church. But we've got a pretty good crowd this morning considering the promise of bad weather. Right? And it wasn't really that bad after all. So we're glad that you're here. But on the weekend, it's always a good time for us to connect with our family. And we do that via iPhone. And the iPhone has a special, unique feature. Anybody know what that is? It's called FaceTime. <laughs> and uh, that's when you get to you know, visit with the grandkids. We have seven, about to have eight, that are all under eight years old. And and we get to kind of visit through them. We're the grandparents on the iPhone screen. And the kids have grown up, and they're, they're used to it now. And they really dialogue. It's a really cool thing. It's a great invention. I did not have that when I was a kid. Didn't really get to connect with my, parent, my, my grandparents that way. Uh, but we get to as grandparents. And it's really cool that they have got to the point that while even Grayson is two years old, he can converse connect with us in a very intimate level, and uh, after a while, he'll take that iPhone from his mom, and he'll just carry it throughout the house, and it's like we're there right there with him, okay, and it's just really amazing. So uh, he was doing something while we were um, FaceTiming with Patty and her three kids in North Carolina, and Grayson was doing something he should not have done, and his mother two times said, now Grayson, please stop that. Now, please means you better stop, but it's still kind of polite. I think it was about the third or fourth time uh, she drew a line in the sand, and she said in a different tone of voice, Grayson, I'm not going to tell you again that if you do that one more time, you're going into timeout. Now, about you know five minutes later in the conversation, Grayson was taking that iPhone and carrying us throughout the house, and you won't believe what he did to Doc. That's my grandpa named Doc. He took me into his bedroom. He propped the phone up in a certain place, and it took him about eight or nine tries where the phone falls, and he picks it up. That's really cool while you're watching it, you know, and uh, kind of gives you brain freeze, kind of like ice cream. But anyway, he finally propped it up, and he said, Doc, now you're in timeout. You stay there. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> and I'm there in timeout. And I can't figure out what I did. Luckily, we were having lunch, and so we had lunch and just completely ignored him, and it was three or four or five minutes. I, there I have a picture of his room in North Carolina up in the beautiful mountains, and no one's there. It was bizarre. And then he came back, and he picked us up, and uh, we continued the conversation. Time out on the iPhone, on FaceTime from Wichita, Kansas, in a corner of the room where he probably has been placed many times. Uh, you know, and I got to thinking about time out and our study today and his mother drawing a line, sort of, so to speak, in the sand. It's a metaphor, isn't it? That if you cross this line one more time, that's it. All of mom's wrath is going to fall on your sweet little head. Now, for some of you who have children, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who, thankfully, their children are raised, you've got grandkids. And that's the beautiful thing about being a grandparent. There is no such word as no. Right? However, with God today, we see where he, through Jesus, is drawing that metaphor, a line in the sand, 
And he is calling for us to step over that line in the sand and to make a commitment, to answer the invitation that he's extending to all who are present in that large crowd who have heard this very lengthy sermon, much like mine, <laughs> on the Sermon on the Mount, with multiple points, by the way. So if you notice in your outline, we've got several points today that we're going to look at. And so we're going to ask and then answer this question about Christ calling us to make us a rock-solid response to the invitation of discipleship. Now, what does that response look like? And I want to quickly look at the text, beginning in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 24. We're going to see that a rock-solid response to the call of Christ first seeks authenticity. It first seeks authenticity. If you notice early on in the words that, that Pastor Matt read, Jesus says, everyone then, and then again in verse 26, he uses that same word, Everyone. I like that word, everyone, because Jesus here is speaking and is addressing a crowd who many different people in the crowd are there for various reasons, but he addresses everyone in the crowd and he is inviting everyone to respond to the invitation of discipleship. He is not excluding anyone. Why is that? cool for us as disciples already, because I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that while all are called, few are chosen, and if we're not careful, we'll have a tendency to elevate ourselves in pride, thinking, well, we're God's special, we're God's elect, we're, we have a special dispensation, so therefore we sort of are above the fray and above the rest, and yet Jesus says to us, we are equal with everyone else, because when he extends this invitation, he extends it to everyone. While it is true, not everyone will respond to the call. It's an invitation to authenticity for everyone who hears his voice and who hears his call. Everyone. Notice, then Jesus says the word then. Everyone then. Your translation may have the word therefore. Everyone. And it starts first in your passage of scripture. But the word then or therefore, whichever translation you have, simply helps us understand that Jesus is referencing what he has previously just spoken about in his Sermon on the Mount. And we have seen Jesus in the last two Sundays, he has spoken about false prophets. And he has warned us to be weary and to be aware and to be watchful for the false prophets who are going to come. And these false prophets are going to profess Jesus, but they're not really of Jesus. And how will we recognize them? We will recognize them by their fruit. You see, they are sort of compared in this metaphor as a tree. And as we evaluate this tree, we will notice that because they are not good trees, they will not produce good fruit. Only a good tree can produce good fruit. And we already talked about, and I don't have time to review it already because we've got plenty of points. But the reason why they are yielding or producing bad fruit is because this tree is a tree that has a wicked heart. They are trees, they are, have not been transformed by the power of a personal relationship with Christ. And because Christ does not reside in their hearts, they cannot then, as a tree, yield good fruit. Only those who are connected or grafted into the vine, who is Jesus, can then have the nutrients and the Spirit of Christ then to yield good fruit. And so he says, we need to be very, very careful with this lack of authenticity. He then goes right into a false profession. And he talks about the people who profess faith in Jesus. They call him Lord, Lord, and yet they do not 
do the things that he has commanded them or called them to do. They're disobedient. And the reason they're disobedient, like the tree that's a false prophet, they do not possess within them the life that comes through a transformed life through faith in Christ. And as a result of that, they are not being obedient. They are doing deeds of wickedness. And Jesus is calling his disciples to an authentic faith. Faith always precedes works. Let me say that again. Faith always precedes works. James talks about this in his letter to the church. He said, you know, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And if you put up your works, they're a result of your faith. Faith always precedes works. Faith in Jesus precedes works. And he's crying out for authenticity. He is asking his disciples to seek an authentic relationship with him. It's important that we are authentic in our faith, being born of the Spirit, grafted into the vine, so that in that authenticity we yield and we then produce the fruit that Jesus is demanding from his disciples. He said, if you want to be saved, you've got to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. He said that to us in this sermon. How do we attain that kind of righteousness? And not in and of ourselves, but yet through Christ who dwells within us, we then, through his righteousness, have an opportunity then to yield fruit of righteousness. You know, let me put it this way. If I this morning got up, went into my garage, stood in my garage and say, I'm a car, I'm a car, I'm a car, I'm a car, and believed I'm a car and professed it a thousand times, would that make me a car? No. Why? Because no matter how many times I profess that I am a car, I will never be a car. And there are some who are preaching Jesus and who are proclaiming Jesus over and over and over again, and yet in their preaching and in their profession, they are not what they preach or profess because they are not what they claim to be. Jesus said, I never knew you. So he's crying out for authenticity. And I think as Christ's followers, as disciples, he's wanting us to step outside of the crowd of inauthenticity and step into a relationship of authenticity where we not only profess to believe and to have faith in him, but we actually practice our faith and we follow him. So I think this solid response that Christ is calling for is in the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's seeking from his disciples a faith that is authentic. So a solid response, first of all, seeks authenticity. Number two, not only does it seek authenticity, but it stays receptive. I'm convinced if we're going to answer the call of Christ, we've got to stay receptive. Receptivity is everything for the disciple. Notice what he says, everyone then who hears these words. That's a large word in this whole sentence, the word hears. You must hear. Christ is communicating. And unless we hear him communicate, we cannot respond appropriately. And the word hear simply means someone who is listening and responding to what they hear. So what we find in this text, as well as verse 26, that both of these builders, who were both wanting and desiring to build a home, both of them were hearing the words of Christ. They were hearing. In other words, they were looking to Jesus to be the architect of their lives. They were listening to what Jesus had to say, and they were learning what Jesus wanted them to do. And that's exactly how we too must hear. We must look to Jesus. And I'm convinced there are many of us who are not looking to Jesus to find out what it is he wants to reveal or to speak into our lives. We're looking everywhere else. 
uh, in books and through counseling and, and in every other place other than the word. And, and he says, if we are to be disciples, if we want to hear his words, we must first look to Jesus. And as we turn and look to Jesus and focus on him, we then must listen. I think part of the reason most of us are not hearing is because we're not listening. For if faith comes by hearing, if you hope to have the kind of faith that is necessary to stand the test of your life and the course of your life and all the circumstances that are bound to bombard your life, we're going to see in a minute, you must not only look to him, you must listen to what he is saying. We talked about it a while ago in joke when, when I got up this morning a while ago and I said, fill it out during the singing, not the preaching. And Pastor Mark said, they can't fill out during the preaching, Pastor, they're going to be asleep. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Love you too, brother. Not. Just kidding. Some of us are asleep. Some of us aren't listening. Some of us aren't listening because we're just flat out not interested in what God has to say. We're not listening because God's leading us in a direction that we don't want to go. Some of us are not listening because we hear God speaking something that's against the cultural trends or the political correctness that goes going on. We're just not listening. So you've got to want to look to him. You've got to listen so that as you listen, you can learn. What are you learning? Many people are not learning because they're not listening. And Jesus is saying here, I want to be the architect of your life. I want you to build on me as a solid foundation because as you do, you will stand the test of time. And so we must stay receptive. There's a receptivity here that is critical. Have you ever been to a place? Have you ever seen? We had a guy the other day. I was somewhere uh, up in the mall. It's where I was a Friday afternoon when Patty and I went on our date afternoon. And, and, and he, was, he was trying to talk on the cell phone and he was, you know, trying to find a connection. You ever been on the cell phone and you couldn't find a connection? How frustrating is that? Well, if, unless we're connected and grafted into the vine and stay connected, we're not going to be receptive. So we've got to look, we've got to listen, and we've got to learn what he's speaking into our lives to stay receptive of what he has for us. No matter what he says, Lord, I will receive. Because both of these men, both of them, the one that made a disaster out of his life, and the one that was successful out of his life, both heard the words of Christ. One was receptive, and one was not receptive. And the end result of a lack of receptivity is fatal, not only to your life, but to your marriage, your family, and your kids, everything. It's important to stay receptive to what he wants to communicate and speak into your life. So we must not only seek authenticity and stay receptive, we must show discernment. We talked a little bit about this last week, but sort of Jesus hits it again. And in the same words that we saw earlier in this discerning aspect about staying discerning, we see in the words in verse 24, these words of mine. Now, we must hear whose words? These words of mine. The other guy also heard these words of Christ. They are words from Christ himself. There is an exclusivity here in which we must discern the voice of God from the voices that are not of God. Or some of the voices, you hear voices? Some of you need medication then. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, 
there are voices. And, and many voices in the world that we live in. Some of them are our own. I said some of them are our own. They're not God's. And some of them are from very close friends who have very good intentions, but they're not really God's. And some of them are from false prophets and those who falsely profess faith in Jesus. And some of those may profess Christ rightly, but they have bad advice. We must be very careful that we discern whose voice we hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus is still speaking today. Let me say that again. Jesus is still speaking today as he did in this text. You look at John uh, John 14 and John 15, we see where Jesus promises disciples that soon he's going to leave them. They're burdened and saddened by that, aren't they? But Jesus said, don't you worry, I'm going to send someone who's going to help you. And he's going to speak for me. And the Holy Spirit now has been sent by Christ, and he is the voice of Jesus himself who speaks into our lives through his written word. And we must still hear him and discern the Spirit's voice speaking for the Savior into our lives through the direction, the leadership, and the grounding of his word because Jesus is still wanting to speak to us today and to you. For he has a lot to say about how he wants to construct your life add and to take away and where you need to plant your life. These words of mine. Notice the authority of Jesus. They are mine. How many of you have what we call one of those red letter editions? Anybody have one of those where the words of Jesus are in red? Why do they do that? So that you'll see right off the bat which words are his. And so we need to understand that Jesus words are not only in red, but in my opinion, the whole Bible should be in red. The whole Bible should be in red because they're all his words. They're from him. They're from the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit, for they're all his words. For these words are mine, Jesus says. Jesus says over and over again in the Gospels, I say to you, you know, it was customary back in the days when, we're going to see this in the minute at the close of our service, when, of our study, where, where Jesus is an authority. Because, you see, back in the old days, in, in Jesus' day, when someone got up, a scribe or a Pharisee, and they would preach, they would quote ancient scholars and prophets who had studied the same text to validate or to prove their conclusion. And as they would speak, they would conclude this and say, well, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so in the past agree with me, so therefore what I'm saying to you is true. I'm not the only one saying this, but all these scholars said this as well. Jesus didn't use any scholars. Jesus said, I say to you. Jesus didn't need to affirm what he was saying by Old Testament scholars and prophets and writers. Jesus was the authority, and Jesus is saying that as your authority, I want you to discern me as that authority and listen to these words of mine to you into your life, how you construct your life, and where you build your life. Discern my voice from all the other competing voices in the world in which you live, even the ones that you create yourself, so that you might hear my words and do them. 
So we must not only show discernment, but number four, we must then submit uncompromisingly or completely. There's a submission here, you see. For it's one thing to look to Jesus. It's another thing to listen to him. It's another thing to learn what he has to say. But that doesn't mean we act on it, does it? Doesn't mean we act on it. Because there's a lot of things right now, to be honest with you, you know you should be doing right now in your walk with Christ that you're not acting upon. So it's one thing to look to him, to listen, to learn, and to know what he wants us to do. It's a complete different matter to do the things that he's calling us to do. Both men responded. One did them, and the other did not do them. And the, complex, the, the, the complication here is, is, is whether or not I'm going to do it or not going to do it. And we must submit wholeheartedly, completely, uncompromisingly to the words of Christ, and we must do them no matter where they lead, no matter what they ask, no matter what they want. Jesus, in this whole Sermon on the Mount, has talked about his will for our lives. He's talked about uh, how we're to treat one another, how we're to treat our enemies, what we're to do in the area of lust, what we're to do in the area of what we pursue. He's talked about all kinds of things in the Sermon of the Mount. And what he's saying here is that you not only look to my word, learn what I'm saying as you listen to my but you then do it because how can you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I've commanded you to do? What's the difference between a disciple and a non-disciple? We follow in the footsteps. We follow the directives. We follow the will, the word, the ways of Christ. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a follower. The problem we have with the church today is what we've created is a bunch of people who accept Jesus as their Savior but never committed to him the leadership or the lordship of their life. They want to be saved from sin and have the promise of eternal salvation, but they don't want to live for him. Well, I ask you, is that a disciple? To profess him and not follow him Is that a disciple? We've been called, if you look at the Great Commission, to go and make not converts, but we've been called to make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Christ. And so we must do the things that he has commanded us to do. We must go where he wants us to go. We must say what he wants us to say. We must look where he wants us to look. We must think what he wants us to think. We must hear what he wants us to hear. We must become what he wants us to become. That is what disciples do. They follow Jesus. They hear his voice. They look to him. They listen and they learn and they live out the principles and the precepts of the directives of God in every step and every way for their lives as much as possible. Now, It's not in and of ourselves because we're grafted in the vine. Those of us who lack strength, he can do it in us, and we've talked about that. But we must submit wholeheartedly and completely to the instructions and the directions of Christ. Well, a solid response not only calls for a submission, which is complete, but number five, it then asks us to select wisely. I think it's interesting Jesus said he wants us to be wise. Notice in the text, verse 24, he said, we'll be will we'll be like a wise man who built his house on the sand. He will be, be like a wise man. He will be. That's a promise. He will be in the future. Those of us who choose Christ will be, will be compared to that of a wise man. A wise man is simply someone who is 
astute, someone who is intelligent, someone who is able to weigh the differences and the balances and to make the right choices. A wise man who did what? Who built his house on the rock. If you look to Jesus and do these things, seek authenticity, stay receptive, show discernment, submit wholeheartedly, uncompromisingly, you have chosen wisely. You're a smart guy or a smart gal. You're highly intelligent. Turn to your neighbor and say, you look highly intelligent today. So, well, thank you very much. You don't look very intelligent today. Sorry. He says, select wisely. Why? Because the other guy didn't select wisely. Notice he says, notice the promise that the other guy who rejected will be like, he will be compared. He will, this is a promise. He will be compared to, he will be like, the future tense, he will be like a foolish man. This word foolish man means blockhead. It means ignorant. I don't know if you know what ignorant is or not, but that's deep east Texas for ignorant. Or the word that I don't like to use very much, but it's the right kind of word, and it offends you, I'm sorry. And I know there are children in the room. Most parents get upset with this word, but the word is stupid. You're just dumb as dirt. You're more than a few french fries short of a Happy Meal, dude. You have not chosen wisely. You're just dumber than dirt. And so he says, choose wisely. Both have the same desire. They don't want to fail. Both are building a house. Both have a set of blueprints. Both have laid a foundation. One was wise and one was dumber than dirt. Because one built on sand, shifting sand. It was not solid. It was not stable. It was not enduring. It did not yield what it promised to yield, not only in this life, but in the afterlife. It speaks of condemnation as well and, and, and damnation. And so we must select wisely. And there are a lot of set of blueprints out there. And there are a lot of people that are they're going to tell you, buy my book and you'll learn these set of blueprints. And I, I, Just go to the Word. You don't need any other book than this one right here. A couple of really good word studies and a couple of commentaries. And I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will speak to you. And you can study and learn enough about how to build a, a life around the principles and the precepts of Jesus. Because you possess the power of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you have the ability to discern, and God will speak through you into your personal life, into your, your circumstance, and show you. That's the beauty about the priesthood of the believer. We have the ability to discern and to let God direct us and lead us and guide us and show us and construct our lives, and, and we, just don't, we just don't exercise it enough. So we must select wisely. Number six, a solid response to the call of Christ not only selects wisely, but stands steady. Stands steady or sturdy. There's a standing here. I notice in verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not, it did not fall because it had been founded, what? On the rock. Not on the screen, verse 27, and the rain fell. And the floods came. Same words. Notice the same words. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. That's the only difference, really. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, their circumstances are the same, if you notice the text. 
put them side by side, and the circumstances are the same. They both, both guys, built houses, and both houses had rainfall on them. We're not talking about a little bitty shower like we had yesterday, and maybe like one we had last night while we were asleep. I don't know how much it rained, but it must have rained because we've got a couple of leaky spots around the church. Happens. I don't know why architects build houses or churches with flat roofs, but they do. It's a no-brainer, I would think, wouldn't you? But anyway, I don't have time for that. And we've got acres of roof in this church, so we've got acres of leaks. So just bear with us. We'll try to plug them up as quickly as possible. But the rains fell. And this is a, a torrential rain. It's not just some little shower. It's a heavy downpour of a rain. And it's weighing you down. They both were being weighed down by the pressures of the world and of life. All of the complexities and all the difficulties and all the circumstances were weighing down on them. Notice not only the rainfall, but notice the floods came. The floods are the currents. If you know anything about heavy downpours, what happens is there are torrential rains that create incredible flooding. And if you've ever seen pictures of floods when they hit the street as they're coming down from the mountains and all of that, it just carries everything with it. And I think it's trying to symbolically help us realize there's a picture that Jesus is painting in the current that is beating up against us as we're trying to make forward progress. There, there's, there's resistance for both. They both are experiencing the floods. They're both experiencing the rains. But notice the winds blew. Did you hear the, the wind howl this morning? Do you know anything about hurricane winds? To know how damaging those can be? Or, or maybe a, a wind from a tornado? It just destroys everything. And, and the idea then is more coming against you. Not only is it hitting you down here, but it's hitting you up here, and you're trying to, it, it's like you're trying to go uphill the whole time. But notice also, it beat against it. What's the objective? The idea of this text is that not only is it trying to beat against it, but it's trying to destroy it. Both guys build houses, they're in the house, and both had rain, flood, winds, and the objective was to beat down the house and destroy it, both. Now, in case you forget, let me remind you that being a Christ follower, a disciple is not going to make you immune from anything. We're not Pentecostal, charismatic, whackamatic here, where everything is great and wonderful and rosy the whole time. You just trust Jesus. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous the whole time. You'll never be sick. You'll never have any financial problems. You'll never have any relationship issues. It'll just be wonderful. Does it sound like a sales job? And the sad thing is people buy into it. Well, you just don't have enough faith. Really? Both these guys... Building houses, one on the rock and one on the sand, they both had the same circumstances. I don't care if you're a Christ follower or not, you're going to have some circumstances that are similar to unbelievers. You may have some pressures that are the same as theirs. We live in a hostile world that is wicked, that is sinful. On top of that, you're a sinful human being that lives with sinners. You're going to have some relationship issues. You're going to have some struggles and strains in your marriage. You may have some financial woes. You may have some, some 
job problems. You may have some physical pains. God doesn't make us immune from that. People say, well, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. No, the light is in the tunnel if you have Jesus with you. And if Jesus is with you, there is no darkness. And how you make it through the difficulty is in Christ. But we have a resource, a reservoir, a strength, a power that helps us rise above the circumstances. The circumstances were the same. But notice the consequences were very different. One fell and one stood. Simple as that. They both fought. And they both put a valiant effort behind their fight. They were both strong and resilient and determined, and they put up a good fight. One lost and one won. And the reason why one lost and one won is that one built his house on the sand and the other built his house on the rock. That's the only difference. The difference is Jesus. For when he's the architect of your home and you're following the blueprints that he has for your life and you're building where he has called you to build on him as the rock, he will enable you and empower you to endure any difficulty that may come your way. For he's the only hope that any marriage has of surviving. He's the only hope that any parent has to seeing their children be raised to follow Jesus. He's the only hope that you have of investing your life in eternity and not for the temporary. He is the only hope that we have if we are anchored on Jesus Christ, who is our solid rock. The rains will come, the floods will come, and the winds will blow, and everything will try to destroy us because sometimes it's a fight, isn't it? I said sometimes it's a fight, isn't it? It's a journey that seems like it's uphill the whole time. But for those of us who are in Christ, if we endure to the end, He is faithful and He is just, and He will come alongside of us and enable us and empower us to stand in the midst of whatever the world or the enemy or even well-meaning others throw into our lives. Not only in this life, but we get to enjoy heaven with Him forever. So the solid response not only seeks authenticity, stays receptive, shows discernment, submits uncompromisingly, selects wisely, and stands steady. Lastly, it sustains reverence. There's a long haul of sustainability here where they are sustaining this reverence, this awesome understanding that Jesus is the sovereign King of kings, and he is the Lord of my life. For notice the reaction and the response as Jesus is giving the invitation. How do they respond? Notice he's concluding the sermon in verse uh, 28, I believe it is. He says, Jesus reveals him, notice, finished these sayings. He got through speaking. Finally came to the end of the sermon. Well, that's all he needed to say. There was nothing more that he was going to say. And there are some times when he comes into our lives and he speaks and he said, you don't need to receive any more and I want you to do what I'm asking you to do with what I've given you. And when you've done that, then I'm going to give you some more. And Jesus is now done at this particular time with this particular group and he's finished and the sermon is over. And upon conclusion, how do they respond? The crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were wowed. Why? It says why. For he, Jesus, was teaching them as one who had authority. 
as one who had authority. There's a reverential respect for Christ here because he is one who has authority. As I mentioned earlier, when he preached, he preached, this is what I say to you. Not what they say or what this scholar says or what this prophet said. This is what I say. I, as the Son of God, I speak into your life directly from the will, from the ways, the mind of the Father. I say to you, on behalf of who I am, the Son of God, I'm speaking into your life, period. I'm not backing it up with anybody to justify what I'm saying. I, as God, as God's Son, speak in your life. I have the authority, and not as their scribes. I say to you. So the question is, what is he saying to you? And do you give him the reverence that is necessary for him to speak into your life? And then for you, as you look to him, as you listen, as you learn, then you live it out. Why? Because he is the authority in your life. He's the Lord. He directs you. For if you're a disciple of his and you're seeking authenticity, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. Nothing you have is yours. It's all his. And he has every right to do with you and your stuff whatever he wants to. You have turned it all over to him. You have yielded to him the controls. And he is Lord of all. That, in effect, is authentic discipleship. We live in an interesting world. And the world that we live in is very fallen. And it's important for us to understand that no matter who we are and where we are, that we're going to come across the same pressures in life. For as we seek to live out our faith for the Lord Jesus, we're going against the tide. Did you know that? Most of you know that. You're going against the tide. It's kind of like me facing you. You're a pretty scary bunch, by the way, up close. The Christian life, the disciple's life, I'm, it, it, let's say, for example, to illustrate, that's me. I'm headed this way. I'm faced this way. Every one of you is faced this way. Every one of you is going this way. And the world that we live in is much like that. Everyone, not everyone, but the majority of them, because remember, wide is the gate and wide is the way, and many are who choose it. Remember we talked about that? And narrow is the gate and narrow is the way, and few who find it. Remember that? So there are many in the world that we live in. And as we choose the narrow gate and we choose the narrow way, most everybody's going this way. And there are false prophets and there are false people professing faith in Christ. They think they're going the way we're going, but they're not. So we're living in a world and everybody's facing this way and everybody's going this way. And it's kind of like us going against the current, the tide of the culture. And they are pulling at us. And Jesus didn't promise that it would be easy. But he did say that as we go against the flow, as we go against the cultural trends and the norms, as we go against Satan and all of his influence to get us to, I mean, as you go, what, what do they want you to do? They're wanting you to go with them, aren't they? They're trying to pull you back, and you keep fighting, and then they pull you back, and you keep fighting, and they keep pulling you back. 
disciple continues to move forward. In spite of the circumstances, the rain, the wind, the tide, the current, all of that, why are they doing that? They want to destroy you. They want to destroy your life. They want to destroy your marriage. They want to destroy your children. They want to destroy your influence. They want to destroy your witness. I mean, Satan's lost the battle for your soul, but he's not lost the battle for your witness. Persevere. Fight the good fight. Go against the tide. Battle the winds. Overcome the pressure. Not in and of yourself, but in Christ. For if your faith is in Christ, or believes is in Him, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. All things are possible to those who believe. Faith proceeds with works. When you put your faith in Him, there's no work that God can accomplish in you. Good morning. We get to celebrate the beginning of our service today by uh, fulfilling a command that, that God gives us in 1 John 2, 5 that says his love is perfected in us as we obey his word. So Jacob Schlittenhart comes today uh, to, to demonstrate his obedience to his word, to perfect God's love in his life by being baptized. And so Jacob's going to sit here and let me ask you, Jacob, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I have. It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Woo!